The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Good morning. I'm Catherine Zox. I am your social worker with the microphone. And you are listening to the Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is Rachel Codenance. Rachel is a motivational speaker, author, grief consultant, and facilitator. Uh, her new book... Uh, which is what we're going to be talking about today, is living with loss, one day at a time. And um, Rachel provides encouragement to those in her book, as well as a motivational speaker, to those who are suffering a loss. She's a columnist for Living with Loss magazine and has appeared on Good Morning America. And when we're talking about loss, we're talking about death, we're talking about grief, we're talking about a very taboo subject, particularly in um, in our country, in our culture. So welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Rachel. Thank you, and good morning, and thanks for having me. It is great to have you. Uh, and, and as I said, you know, I mean, death, grief, even just loss, it's taboo for most Americans. We don't want to talk about that stuff. We only want to talk about the good stuff and, and, and move on. And obviously, your book, your work, what you do, and I didn't mention that you have all, also the co-founder of the Heartlight Center, which is a not profit facility in Denver designed to help people deal with personal grief and educate the community about the grieving process. Okay, so um, you're doing some pretty tough stuff there, pretty tough work. Um, what motivated you? Why did you begin doing this? Well, the interesting part of it is I am by profession uh, business, I have a business background, business degree from college, and I was working in Fortune 100 companies with the goal of breaking the glass ceiling, as most women say that they're going to be the first to break the glass ceiling. And then in 1992, uh, when I, my husband was 32, my daughter was two, he walked out of work and he just uh, dropped in the parking lot. It was arrhythmia. Uh, we had run eight miles that day during lunchtime. And so it shook my world. And when I was able to get my feet back on the ground, I chose to change my, my outlook on life and, my, and where I was going to go in my career. And I chose to take on the whole grief and loss and use my business background that I had to help corporations and grievers get through such, as you called it, a taboo subject. Rachel, but you just said something. You said got your feet back on the ground. And obviously it sounds like you had to do it yourself and it was kind of a stumbling block. It wasn't easy because, I mean, how'd you, 32 years old, no one expects your 32-year-old husband to drop dead. I mean, the expectation is not there, you know, when you're maybe 62 or 72. So it must have been, I want to talk about it a little bit because it's all kinds of stuff that goes with that. And you have a two-year-old daughter. What have, I mean, I want to talk about your response, obviously, and, and, and what happened to you. Well, I was, um, I'm originally from the East Coast, and I was in Kansas City working for Sprint at the time. This is pre-cellular. This is when they were truly long distance in the AT&T um, breakup divestiture. And when he passed, it was, I had no clue what was going on. I would, I want to say for two solid years, 
although I maintained my position at Sprint, and I worked really hard, and I was able somewhat to focus on that. But then I was single mom, and at age 32, you really don't have, you don't put your life together in the sense, like as you said, that this something like this would happen. So there was very little life insurance money, and I was naive enough to think um, that there, his paycheck would still go in the bank, and of course it didn't. And so I just really stumbled through the first couple of years. I try to hang my hat on anything that I could find. I'm pretty athletic, so I took on a, his goal of doing the Ironman. I just did everything and anything I could to just fall asleep and wake up in the morning and maintain a household. Did you get, Rachel, did you get support from either family or friends or people at work? And then how did you relate to your two-year-old daughter when her dad dies at, you know, at age 32? Um, what kind of support did you get? Did people want to talk about it? Because my experience is nobody, everybody's usually wants to say, well, you have to go on with your life and you're young. And I can think of all the kind of platitudes that you might have had to uh, endure. Well, I have a wonderful family. No one lived where I lived. So there was a distance be- between where my physical support would be. And remember, this is pre-cell, pre-internet. So, the you know, it's phone calls. It's not, it wasn't just that I can just text somebody and say I'm having a really bad day today. I mean, that was, this was, this was years ago. My family did the best that they can, and I love them dearly for everything that they did do. But what they didn't do for me was bring him back, and, of course, that's what I wanted. But they also couldn't truly relate to me. I I call it in my book as well that there's two tiers of grievers. The first tier are those who are grieving the loss of someone close, and the second tier grievers are those who are grieving for the griever. And my family, even though they lost their son-in-law and their brother-in-law, they were really grieving for me trying to figure out what was I going to do next. And I had no clue what I wanted to do next. But on the other hand, I didn't want to release my husband from my heart. So part of that means if I am going to move on and do something different, I really had to, really had to release him. And I had to work on that in my own time. Did you feel guilty? I mean, they, you talk about survivor's guilt, and I know, I mean, that's something that's discussed even in a lot of the textbooks and stuff, but did you feel that? Like like you mentioned, if you let go of him, then it's like feeling guilty that I am deserting him or I should still be grieving or all of those kinds of feelings. Ironically enough, I never had um, survivor's grief back then, but at her high school, my daughter's high school graduation, I was sitting at the, at the graduation with my new in-laws on my left and my deceased husband's in-laws, that his parents on my right. So I've got two sets of in-laws, and I just started crying, and my friends were, they were giving me so much crap that, Rachel, it's a high school graduation. What are we doing here? But what it was is that was what, if we want to call it survivor's guilt, it was the point where I just was, oh, my goodness, I got to have this wonderful life with this child, and he didn't. So it was really that I really felt bad for him that he wasn't there even though I remarried and, you know, moving and doing my life, I just, just can't believe that he wasn't there to see his precious little baby graduate. Yeah, I think you bring up a, a really important point because I think sometimes people, one feels like you go through the grieving process and you go on with your life in a positive way and all that, that, that it, you kind of leave things behind you, but that maybe at each, I guess, each important perhaps event in one's life it returns, you know, the, the feelings return, like you're describing, high school graduation. Maybe you'll feel the same way when your daughter has children, and, and it kind of continues with, through your life, but you probably, I mean, emotionally, do you handle it in a different way? You're better, you're more prepared. 
But I don't consider it reappearing. I consider it's a constant, constant. It's a constant thing that happens. It's just through everything I do. I mean, even my on my book, my middle name, I changed my middle name, you know, to when I remarried to my daughter and my middle name to what my my married name was um, for my husband that passed away. I just continue. I think it's all a continuation of life. I don't think I started here, ended here, started over again, because what I am and what I do, I'm shaped by the experience that I went through, and I want to bring Rod, who is my deceased husband, through the journey with me forever. And I'm very fortunate because the people around me are embracing that. Rachel, how long were you married to Rod, and then how long have you been married to your second husband? So three and a half years I was with Rod and 16 years with my husband, my current husband, who has embraced everything I do just so wonderfully. It's just, it's just you know, it's a, it's a wonder. Like right now I'm, on, I'm actually in, in the East Coast and I'm on a book tour, and it's just he just supports everything that I do. It's a wonderful. What does he do? He's in information technology, so he's in... in in large businesses, international business. So, something very different than what you do. But, well, uh, actually, that's where I came from. I mean, I came from yeah. IT, information technology, and, and Fortune 100 companies. That's really what my, my background is before I started doing this. But when I started supporting corporate America on grief in the workplace, because I knew how to help the coworkers and the management and wrote a program, I, I gave my chance to still be in the corporate environment. What's interesting, and I think it's it's unique about your your book and your philosophy and all, what you speak about and everything, is this grief in the workplace. Um, so I, I want to focus on that a little bit because grief in the workplace involves the uh, and not only grief for the person, perhaps someone who in the workplace dies, or you are empathizing, or you are working with a coworker who's a significant person in their life has died. So. Um, grief in the workplace, there are a lot of issues surrounding it, I guess, and, and, and how um, not only employees but employers handle grief in the workplace. So let's talk about that. Well, for, that's a great, this, um, this is one of my, my just near and dear to my heart. So when I came back to work, I had a large staff of all men because I was very technical. And it, me coming back, losing my husband and having a two-year-old baby, their lives changed forever. No matter what I did as an, a manager, they knew that I, as best that I could, I wasn't really looking out for their best interest anymore because I was on a survival mode. Although I maintained the professionalism, it just, they knew it changed. So from the second a grieving person returns to work, so in this case, such as myself, it changed my coworkers and management's life forever. I believe in my heart that there is a lot of support for employees because you could do it through not only your health insurance and mental health insurance, but you could also get support through grief groups, et cetera, and even, you know, in the employee assistant program. But when it goes to coworkers and managers and even HR, there wasn't really anything out there. They didn't know what to do. There's a traditional bereavement leave policy, but that's a policy. It's not a law, and people can work around that. And while society thinks that's the biggest issue of grief in the workplace, it really is, that's not the biggest. The biggest is it might take, you know, the timeline of going through grief and you're still working is it could be six months, it could be a year, it could even be more than that based on the dysfunctionality of the family. So what I try to do is train the coworkers, the management and HR of 
what do you do when there is a death of an employee, when a grieving employee returns to work, whether it's anticipatory loss, whether it is deployment, any type of loss, how do you work with that person and educate them on how to not just be sympathetic, but understand that no two people's journeys are the same? Rachel, do you have to connect that helping people to deal with their loss, the person who has sustained the loss, and, and I was, you said in deployment, it can be having to do with the military, lots of things. Do you have to connect that to the bottom line for, for, for heads of companies? I mean, if you work with big companies or even small companies, that you know, if you address this issue and if you have training programs beforehand, not necessarily after the fact, that it's going to affect your bottom line in a positive way. You're going to have coworkers who work better, who do better for the company. Is is that part of it? So, in some of my benefits when I when I am marketing to companies, I share with them. It's a great question, by the way. What I share with them is that we all know that the most one of the most costly piece of employment employer employment relationship is turnover, because turnover creates you know the training, the disruption, etc. So trying to avoid the turnover and making it work. And plus, if you are, as an employer, if you're loyal to your grieving employee, they're going to be loyal back, which means that relationship is going to be a much stronger relationship. So that's going to help on the bottom line. Also, if you help the grieving work group, you're you're going to have a little bit of a, a dysfunctionality is not the right word, but you're going to have a little bit of... It just is the work's going to be off a little bit for a while while people are dancing around and trying to figure out how to do this. It gets a little unproductive. So getting that productivity back on track is, again, a cost saver because we can't do, you know, you can't fire the employee that is going through the loss. So I feel that anything that you do to smooth the waters, it will only make life better because people will see it as a company that is really a caring company and they'll want to be part of the team. Yeah, and with the aging population, and you have many more older people, baby boomers in the workforce. I mean, I think this is kind of right on target. I mean, it's really uh, it's ne- this this topic is is necessary to address. Have you seen any major changes? Because you're talking about well, like when this happened to you, when your husband died, and you were 32 years old, 16 years ago, from 16 years until now, and or is this just? Or just are we? Are you? Are we just beginning to address this topic of grief in the workplace? I'm going to answer that both, because I do think we have a long way to go. But I also think that we're getting there. I believe that bringing in the Family Leave Act and putting grief into that, I think that is a great start to what companies realize they have to do, and not just want to do that they have to do. And then the other piece is, if you look at the bereavement leave, which is my biggest, if, if, I, if I will tell you that one out of, out of every five emails I get or questions I get, it's about bereavement leave. But the bereavement leave, being adding in the domestic partner and adding in some other distant relatives into that mix tells me that we are starting to look, we as a, as a society are starting to look at grief. My big one that I've got an aha going right now is this book is it just came out, Living with Loss One Day at a Time, and it's a very different approach. Um, you've seen it. It's a very different. It's a very upbeat, motivational. I, I will tell you that I was under the rug for years. I'm not going to deny that grief is the hardest thing you will ever have to go through in your life. But I also feel that we have a lot of life to live. So with me transferring into this book and the way I'm doing it, when I wanted to share it, that we're coming a long way in both company and in society. I'm speaking this week at in the Upper East Side, Barnes & Noble, and I think that that's a topic that we, as you said at the very beginning of our talk, 
that it's true. The fact that I'm going to be able to go there and do that, we would not have been able to do that a couple of years ago. So I think it's baby steps, but we're getting there. Yeah, and I think you've also, you just said something, the definition of family has expanded, which is a good thing. Partnerships are different, marriages, partners, whatever, extended family, and we include that in the whole definition of loss and, and, and grief, which I think is important. Um, can you give us an example? Because, you know, listeners like to hear, like, specific examples of, of where you've worked with somebody, or individual and or a company, and it has a really positive outcome, either for the company or either for a family or just the individual. So I feel that any time that I get to walk in the door that, that it, it is, it's a successful event because that means everybody around me has offered their heart or their wherewithal to say, okay, I would like to do something. So I think taking any kind of step is, is there's always a great outcome. I just, I really feel that because that means you're willing and you're opening up your heart and you're, you're not, you're scared because you're still doing something. But I've had some specifics, um, many companies, and suicide is big that you get brought into, and I'm going to stay away from that for a little bit because it's a death. But I've had, for example, going into a company where there's been, as simple as this makes sound, there's two pregnant women, and one of the women has lost her baby at month eight. And out of the, out of the group, come back where one person they want to have a shower for, and another person is mourning the loss of a life that they never really even met. I chose that one because it's it's... It's something that is, we think, oh, the baby wasn't born yet, there's no death, but there truly is. And all those coworkers that are around it are down tiptoeing, and it becomes this happy, that was supposed to be happy, becomes such a stressful thing for the workplace. So there's those types of examples um, where you can come in and you could share ideas of how to help the surviving pregnant person and the surviving work group of how... You can still talk about your what you've got pending, but you also can't run away from this person that has lost their baby. And I try to teach them and help them. You've got to recognize this person that lost their that had this situation. So that's a positive. There's um when any time an employee can talk in a group, it becomes a positive. I think any time anybody can talk about their loss, it's a positive. Yeah, and, and that brings us up to, and I, I want to talk about Camp Widow, which is just an amazing project that, that uh, has been your baby, I, I guess I'd talk of it, speak of it in that way. Uh, but before we get into that, I just have one last question about the work situation, because there seems to be, there has to be a balance as well. And when you provide these workshops for people to be able to express their grief in a, in a healthy way, it also prevents people from some, you know, in a work situation where the grief and the loss becomes overwhelming and that's all people talk about and all they feel and then they're not doing their work. So that's another piece of it. So you need the outlet, but you need it in, in a, it has to be done in an, in an appropriate, I guess you would say, venue within a work environment. There definitely has to be balance, and I think that that's where the management and the human resources come in. Sometimes the manager is a little too close, so the HR person has to come in. But most companies, and I don't want to say the smaller ones, but most of the larger ones have EAPs, employee assistant programs, and they can sometimes, if the budget allows it, but a lot of times the budget doesn't, they can come in and play, inter, you know, they can play, you know, just come in for the, the middle level. Sometimes when I come in is what happens is I'll do my presentation the first couple of days of there's a loss and everybody's numb and nobody can do anything. They're just, they're just so numb. What I really like is to follow up the next week or two weeks later 
because I'm an innocent bystander. If people want to complain about their, the way their manager's handling it or be, or praise the way the manager's handling it, handling it, or if they want to talk about coworkers, I'm just an innocent bystander. So they can open up, and as soon as they talk, it's just like everything in life. When we get it off our chest, we feel better, and sometimes they just need an outlet. So I like doing that so I can provide the outlet because they don't like to take a risk with their managers because then they get a ding in their, and they believe they get a ding in their professionalism. Right, yeah, let's talk about Camp Widow. What's so Camp? Yeah, sorry. No, no, let's do Camp Widow. So I am on the board of Soren Spurs Loss Foundation, and this wonderful, our wonderful executive director, Michelle Neff Hernandez, came up with this idea when she was widowed. Her husband was um, hit from behind. On, he was riding a bicycle in California, and he died instantly, and he had, she had three kids. And she just felt like it would be just so great to be able to – she had lovely sisters similar to me, but it would be great to be connected to people that have similar situations. So she came up with this concept of a week, weekend-long event called Camp Widow, and we just finished our seventh camp in San Diego this past summer, and it is widows and widowers, um, and it, we, they just show up on uh, Friday morning. So we get there usually Thursday night. We have it in Tampa and San Diego, and we're actually going to do one in Canada um, next spring. And what we do is you come up, and then all day Friday we have workshops, and some of them are sudden loss, and some of them are or, you know, whether you're an anticipatory loss and you've been a caregiver and how you've been handling that. And then we try to make sure that we pair people, just have all kinds of, of classes, so to speak, or workshops, whether it is um, based on a sexual orientation or whether it's based on a... Re- we try to stay away from religion, but, but with your widowed, you weren't married, you were just engaged, and whether it is military, there's always something that you can latch on to the first day so you can at least meet some people. And then we just go into a weekend long of events, including message release and workshops, and we even do a formal event so everybody can get dressed up and usually a 5K or a walk. So it's just a weekend. Think of campus for kids, but instead of arts and crafts, we're doing just upbeat type of um, presentations. Upbeat as much as you can in, in death and widowhood. Yeah, that is so fantastic. And nobody else it's has ever done this? Yeah, it is fascinating yep. because, first of all, well, as a social worker, I find support groups, I mean, really, really work the best. I mean, individual therapy is important, family therapy is important, but when you get people in support groups like you're describing, I mean, no matter what it is, you know, it has, you know, you're talking about grief and loss and widowhood, but um, it really does work and you find people, of, you know, who have you're saying people who not only have suffered a loss, but you get really specific. Like you may have gay couples, you may have what do separated by age. You know, older people. You talk about anticipatory loss or sudden loss, and that's very different. So, I mean, you yeah. get real specific in terms of who people can connect with. We try to do that the first day. The first day, we try to do all types of breakout sessions, and the whole purpose is it, it's so that you come to camp because most people come by themselves. So you find someone in the first two hours that you're at camp, like we do a new camp orientation. And we just try to get campers the first, like that first morning within the first two hours. They can choose whatever one they want to go to. Well, they can choose the whole weekend what they want to go to, but specifically at the very beginning we try to get them so that they have somebody that they've connected to on whatever level. We're all connected because we're widows, widowers, but just to have a, the next step of it. And it's friends for life. It's a, it's amazing. I mean, you could you get on social media and see what everybody's doing. But now there's regional groups that have taken off. 
it's when I first heard I was asked to speak at it, that's how I found out about it. Um Michelle found me on the on the net and I went out there and I told her I'm a lifer. I mean I've been <laughs> at seven camps and I'm going to all three in twenty fourteen. But also, Rachel, you're a lifer, but so everybody else can be a lifer because when you talk about like when, this, when you lost your husband or when he died, it was 16 years ago, and now people can continue. I mean, once you meet at these, at these events, you've got the Internet, you've got, I mean, you continue just to, uh, to uh, you know, be the connected bond. with each other, the right? Bond. I imagine, do you have a lot of people who get married? Yeah, we, um, it's interesting because my, my new husband, we go, he comes out to the San Diego one with me and we do a remarriage presentation and let, I mean, I'm, I'm open to anybody asking any kind of questions because I was one that didn't want to remarry because, you know, I lost the love of my life, my first, my first love and all. And so we, we do get that. We don't get a lot. If, if they meet at camp, I'm not really, I don't track them to know that. I know for a fact that there was one couple because they came back to tell everybody about it that they had met at camp. Yeah, so I'm sure you probably get more and more stories like that. I'm sure, yeah, and I ran a support group. Thousands of widows had gone through my Ed Hartman Center, and I had a lot of marriages and relationships from that. And it's interesting because, you know, they, when they stop coming, I kind of keep in touch with them or they'll show up every once in a while, but then I get the, the happy email, oh, my gosh, we got married. And it's just great. It's just <laughs> yeah, which is a great, great story. We have a few minutes left, so one last question about your daughter because, I mean, she lost her father. And one other thing, this is just something that, uh, you know, before you answer that one, just, you know, in the beginning, I think you used the word past. And I've always wondered, is, I've always thought when people use the word past, that was kind of like avoiding, they died. That, you know, that that was kind of like a euphemism for dying. But apparently, I mean, you're not someone who is, is uh, um, living in euphemism. So, but you did use that term. Is that something that I need to... No, I would have to tell you honestly that I jump all over. I and it's interesting that you picked up on that. I I'm really all over. Like sometimes I say pass, sometimes he died, sometimes you know I I don't have a word. It just it's what rolled off my mouth at that that particular time. I'll be honest with you. I probably less saying he's dead because it sounds so permanent. Because in my heart, I'm not very spiritual, but in my heart. He died, yes, but he's still who, I mean, we are who we are because of that loss. So there's a part of him that's still with us. So I guess I might, if you were really to dissect it, that I stay away from dead, but yeah. I don't do it on purpose. Yeah, well, I like your, de- uh, your definition or your description, I guess you would say, because he does live on in you and your daughter, which is my last question. How is she doing? Well, she's great, and this book has changed everything because she's now, you know, she's just graduated college, and she's actually living in Manhattan, and she got into really into me writing this book and pushing me and um, just, just because she, she feels like she's a part of it now. She is him a thousand percent. It's so true when people talk about what's the difference between DNA and nature and how, how a kid grows up. She is him, and so you just know that it's inside her, and she just is really excited about what I'm doing and and just how upbeat the book was, and she wanted to be part of the editing and the book design, and so it's wonderful, It's up, and so is his family. His family has been absolutely wonderful. So it's still a family affair. It is a family affair. It, it is a family affair, which yeah. creates 21 nieces and nephews for me. Well, we have to say goodbye. We have our next guest who's ready to, to come on the show. But, Rachel, it has really been great talking to you, and I want you to, to Living With Loss, your new book, Code Nance, Rachel Code Nance, Living With Loss, One Day at a Time. 
website that listeners can go to. You can buy the bookstore. You can buy the bookstore. You can buy the bookstore probably, but you can buy the book at bookstores everywhere online. Um, and what website if we want to keep in touch with you? It's rachelkadamas.com. I'm going to spell it. So it's www.rachelkodanaz.com. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you, Catherine, for having me on. Yep. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. Yep. We are going to be talking to our next guest, but we're going to take a short break. Um, our next guest is Dr. Beverly Guy uh, Sheftel, Ph.D., and uh, Dr. she is one of the leading feminists of our time, one of the leading African-American feminist scholars of our time. Don't go away. We'll be back in a minute. Be sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for us at keyword Voice America. Want to know what's going on behind the scenes with your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network host? How about what's new with our network? Make sure you check out the iRadio blog, a look at what's hot at Voice America and beyond. Visit www.iradioblog.com today. Get the inside scoop on every channel on our network, including breaking news, featured guests, blog posts from our hosts, and much more. Make sure you sign up for our newsletter for even more inside action. Visit iradioblog.com today and stay connected. Now there's a new destination for video content, voiceamerica.tv, just like our radio channels and so much more. Voice America Variety, Health and Wellness, Business, Sports, Green Talk, Power Up Motorsports, and 7th Wave Network now have their own video channel components. Plus, check out exclusive programming, including movies, music, educational courses, science and history, current events, and short features. High-definition, premier-quality programs available 24-7, voiceamerica.tv. If you think you've seen online TV like this before, let us support you. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. Welcome back. I'm Catherine Zox. I'm your social worker with the microphone, and you are listening to VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio, The Catherine Zox Show. My second guest this morning is Dr. Beverly Guy Sheftel, Ph.D., one of the leading African-American feminist scholars of our time. Uh, she was instrumental in bringing the women's study movement to women of color and the voices of women of color to women's study. She's also a professor at Spelman College. Uh, she got her B.A. when she was 16 years old, which is amazing, and is considered a superstar in the women's movement, uh, a woman of color from the South. Uh, she began her work in the 70s and the 80s. So welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Doctor. Can I call you Beverly? Oh, of course. <laughs> okay, great. Great to have you. Okay, so you're, you and I are kind of in the same uh, genre, the same, mm-hmm. I th- yeah, which is, and um, so how did this all happen? When did you... You know, when did it begin? You got involved in the women's movement, um, Professor. Um, what Ms. Magazine calls you this? Well, this was in the stunning tradition of Black female intellectualism. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. 
Well, you know, I, I, I went to women's college, uh, Spelman, and then after I left Spelman, I went to Wellesley College. This would have been in 1970, uh, 1967. And then I came back to uh, graduate school. I was doing English at that point at Atlanta University, and I ended up doing a master's thesis on Faulkner's treatment of women in his major novels. So I would say that's the late 60s. The first women's studies program is in 1970. So I... I ended up uh, doing a, 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 a master's thesis on a women's studies topic, came back to Spelman in 1971 to teach in the English department and started teaching women's studies courses and then decided I would do a Ph.D. in American studies and I focused on African-American studies and women's studies. So the journey began um, as a graduate student, and then I, in the 70s, because of my interest in feminism, joined the uh, women's movement. Yeah, well, there are different, de- you know, now, I mean, and maybe then, too, I, Beverly, I was thinking, because there are different definitions of feminism. Maybe mm-hmm. we should talk, what, what was feminism back then? What, you know, because I think it's changed and it's evolved. They call, you know, there's a new definition, the new feminism. We can talk about that later. But what was feminism back in the 70s? Well, I think back, you know, back then it was, it, it was sort of uh, very simply uh, a, a, a movement to bring about gender equality. I think that, that was a definite focus on gender equality. I think now, mainly as a result of the of, of women of color uh, and and progressive other women interested in a broad range of issues, we would now say that fem- feminism is about the ending of all oppressions, not just gender uh, inequality. So I think it has a broader definition than than just about ending gender equality. Would you? I mean, what would be the difference between uh, feminism for black women versus white women? Is the, what are the what are the differences? Are there differences? Well, I, you know, I I, I I would say as a, as as a woman of color that a, that a f- feminism should be that is the attachment to feminism for all women, no matter who you are, should be about ending all oppressions. I think that black women also talk a lot about why it's important to have an anti-racist feminism. That if, that if all you're interested in as a feminist is, is ending gender inequality, then you won't notice, for example, huge racial differences or huge class differences within the U.S. context. So I think that African-American women would say that, that looking at all of the identities that women have, not just gender, would mean that you would would uh, pay attention to all those things as a feminist. Yeah. So you have to include racism. So give us an example, because I think people learn better from examples. Like, I mean, you've had so much experience in the, you know, give us some really concrete examples of femini- feminism and racism and discrimination and, you know what I'm, you know. Okay, so let, so 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 let, let let's let's just let, let's just say that one of the one of the uh, big uh, moves within what I call traditional feminism was that we want to make sure that women have access to uh, higher jobs in the corporate sector, or we want to make sure that there's a woman on the Supreme Court, or we want to make sure that there's a woman in the White House. Okay. That, that, that kind of uh, commitment is, makes sense, but it may not have you addressing what is the more common 
experience of women in the U.S., which is one of poverty. So, for example, there's a, there's a saying that we're not just interested in the um, women at the top, but we're interested in the sticky floor. So as an African-American feminist, I am as committed, for example, to making sure that the women who work in colleges and universities who clean the floor, I'm as interested in doing something about their wages as I am interested in making sure that this college has a woman president. So, so I'm How always you- asking, which women are you talking about? If you're only talking about women uh, in, a, in, a, in a corporate environment or only talking about women in law firms or only talking about women in colleges and universities, then you're not thinking about the plight of most women in the U.S. Most women in the U.S. are not middle class or not on the upper end of the, of the, of the class spectrum. So that's what it means to have an analysis that takes into consideration not just gender but also race and class. How do you then bring these women together? Hmm? A, how do you then bring these women together in a movement where you're going to get progress in these areas? As you say, we're not talking about, you know, the woman who wants to be CEO of a company or a lawyer mm-hmm. or a doctor. But we're talking about, as you say, the woman who's cleaning the buildings and mm-hmm. working on the streets. Uh, but how do can can these women come together in a movement with common goals and you know what I'm and being able to accomplish? Equality that we're talking about. Well, I think I think that you have. I mean, for example, let's let's just take the let's just let's just take the the, the issue of affordable health care. That's a, that that's a that's a women's that's a women's issue from the perspective of a woman of color feminist. It 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 doesn't on the surface appear to appear to be a gender issue, but it is a women's issue. Affordable affordable health care. So what the women's movement, people in the women's movement would say is that even though on the surface of that it doesn't seem like that's a women's issue, it is a women's issue if we enable people to see the large numbers of women who have children don't have affordable health care. I think that that's an issue in the movement that all women could connect to. Even if they may have health insurance, they are very likely to know somebody who does not have health insurance. So that's the kind of perspective that I think the new women's movement needs to have. That is, always asking the question, which women are you talking about? So I think that you have to be committed to the broad range of women in the U.S., many of whom are quite privileged by virtue of race and class, and many of whom are not privileged at all. I think talking about violence against women within the movement is an issue that brings all of us together together despite our racial and class differences. Most women, despite their class privilege or racial privilege, can relate to the pervasive global problem of violence against women. Violence against women cuts across all classes. That's right. Yeah, I think sometimes it's more, as a social worker, it's maybe more visible Mm -hmm. in people living, or women living in poverty, and it's hidden in the middle and upper middle class or upper classes, Mm -hmm. but it's there. Um, what's the reaction 
I mean, you, like what, what? Now we've been talking about women and the the issues with women, but what about the men? Where do the men come into this? Both uh, men of color, white men. How do they fit into this picture of feminism that you're describing today? Well, I think one of the one of the um, uh, seductions of the women's movement, if I can say that, is to get men to understand first of all their own male privilege. That is to get men to understand that one of the issues about patriarchy is that it prevents them in many ways, and I, and I know this may sound counterintuitive to, to, to men, but that patriarchy actually uh, does not promote their full development. Um, one of the things that I can just mention very concretely is, is um, the fact that now, as a result of the women's movement, we have something called paternity leave. That is, acknowledging that, that men should have a role to play in raising children and that they should be able, if they make that choice, to have the same kind of leave as, as, as we had with, with maternity leave. So I think that what we, what we have to do with men is to enable them to understand that a world in which gender stereotypes fall away, racial stereotypes fall away, is a world that all of us benefit from. And I think that it's easier to get men who are parents to, to, to see that argument, women who have, men who have daughters, for example, uh, are much more committed in many ways to ending violence against women because they see that violence against their daughters is not, is, 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 is not something that they want. So I think that men, fathers, partners, with the right kind of, of feminist message are able to see that what feminists want is a world that benefits all of us. So we have to welcome the men into the movement. Sort of, I don't like to use this word, but I'm going to. We have to co-opt them into the movement because I think it's very difficult for men, as you say, you talk about the, the we, I mean, I think we still live in a patriarchal mm-hmm. country, society, mm-hmm. like to, to, to show men that by giving up their power that it's going to be a good thing for them, that's not easy to do. I mean, you just mentioned two things, you know, being a father, an uncle, mm-hmm. a brother, paternity leave. Um, and I think one of the arguments that I've heard, not recently, but I maybe you can comment on this. I mean, in countries where women have no rights and no privileges, uh, where men just rule the country, you have half a population that isn't, it doesn't have the opportunity to contribute. So you're losing out on all right. this intellect and talent and, mm-hmm. uh, and, and, I mean, that's the extreme. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. we do not live in those kinds, in, in those countries. But um, those, that's a good, I always find that a good example. Um, and, yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a good example. I, I, I think another good example is what it means to live in, in societies or in cultures in which war, or what, what we would call, you know, militarized hyper-masculine values uh, permeate. I mean, I think I think that there's an argument that can be made to men, uh, which which argues that this would be a better world if we did not assume that that aggression, uh, which is stereotypically masculine, is the way that we should solve problems. Frequently, you can appeal to men on that level. That is with a, with a peace, a global peace argument. That 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 the values that have gotten us to this place. You know, very hyper-masculine, militaristic values are not are not values that are going to help the planet. 
but we've got that testosterone there. Mm-hmm. You know, the testosterone and that estrogen is always there. You can see the difference in little boys and little girls. I mean, um, so we have to, I mean, it's always that kind of aggressive male testosterone, mm-hmm. yeah, kind of thing. Well, but but, that, but, but, but we, we also know that that's learned behavior. That is, we, 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 we know that uh, little boys are socialized, taught to be uh, aggressive. And, yeah. and, and so with different kind of sexual socialization, um, boys would not, um, you know, believe that to be a, a real man or, or to be a real boy is to only display aggressive, problematic emotions. Yeah, it, it, see, it's kind of a combination, though, isn't it? I mean, both, or you want to channel that testosterone in, in good ways, I mean, because you can use it for the good, not necessarily for the aggressive, for the, for the bad stuff, but you can uh, make it work in a positive way. Um, so I guess, you know, and that starts when these, when these little boys are young, but you work in a college, and so you see a lot of young people. Mm-hmm. What about the young Young men that you see, what are how do you see? I mean, and you've had the opportunity to like see this over you know twenty thirty year period the changes, uh, and obviously with women. But what about with the young men? Do you see a real difference in the young men today, or what is the difference in terms of their attitude towards women and women's place in our in our? Well, unfortunately, I, I, unfortunately, I would say that the, the 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 media that that the media is such a negative site for. Uh, gender attitudes. I mean, I would say that the boys that I grew up with and probably the boys that you grew up with uh, in high school or college were not inundated with toxic, hypersexual images of women. I mean, every day this is what they consume on the television and magazines. So what they see, what little boys see more than anything else, are, are women as sex objects over and over and over and over again. So I I would say that our task with young boys and young girls is much more challenging than it was when I began teaching in 1971. I mean, music videos were not around in 1971. Uh, Really um, uh, very problematic video games were not around in 1971. So I would say that the the impact of, of popular culture and the media have made it even more difficult to um, provide young boys with alternative gender messages because because that's that's all they see. And, and when I tell my students that when I was growing up, we didn't even see uh, you couldn't even have married couples in the bed on TV. That's right. That leave it. They they, yeah. they you know you 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 did not see. Uh, that kind of sexuality uh, uh, in your day-to-day life. Uh, they, are, they are appalled. They, they just cannot even imagine that. Because so what do they say to you, though, Beverly? What's their response? Do they, uh, do they admit to it? Do they, you know, I mean, what? I'm curious. They, they, they don't believe it. They, they, <laughs> they, they cannot believe that. So, you know, the, the, their first response is, oh, things cannot have changed that much. You certainly must be exaggerating. You can't, I can't, you can't be telling me that you did not see sex on TV. 
That's amazing. Yeah, I mean, I've, you know, that is amazing to me. I mean, you have to, it's part of the, I mean, part of your courses should be for them to go back and look at some of this 1950s kind of stuff that we yeah. saw on television. Yeah. You, you have to show it to them. And, it's, and you know, they, they, of course, just laugh. You know, you, we didn't even see people kissing on TV. I mean, even within the context of of, of, of marriages, and so the, and then the other thing that they say, of course, is, oh, you must have had you you must the kind of music that we're listening to, you know, you must have been listening to that kind of music too. No, no. Uh, so it's it's very hard for them to really believe that in what in in thirty years, in twenty to thirty years. The popular culture, popular media have changed to the extent that it has. Which is interesting because, I mean, we have changed in terms of we don't allow uh, institutionalized, we can't, institutionalized racism and feminism, Mm -hmm. um, which is a positive movement, Mm -hmm. which is is good. But, but kind of as you say, the media has kind of, has gone in the wrong direction. So, Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Can you relate this to, I mean, now the LBGT movement, uh-huh. what can they learn from what's happened or evolved over the years for us as women, women of color, white uh-huh. women, women in general, uh, the good, you know, what can they take from it that is the good and, and maybe call out the, the, you know, the stuff that is not so good, you know, to, because that's kind of the last vestige, I don't know, of institutionalized, uh, what would you call it, um, you know, or, or, or institutionalized homophobia. Yeah, institutionalized homophobia. Right. Well, you know, this is this is the this is the real challenge, I think. That there, there's a national a national move to there's a, and this is this has been very much championed by the president, President Obama. So there's a national move to make visible discrimination against gay and lesbian people, uh, and policies that su- are supporting that move. You know, in the military, uh, with respect to legalizing gay marriages, but there's also a counter-narrative a ca- uh, and a, a resistance to that uh, in many racial ethnic communities. So, so there are two sets of messages that young people are likely to get. They get one message at home or one message in their churches, and one message in, their, in, in maybe their public schools, which is not a progressive message. And then they have this national discourse occurring that you're referring to. And that's very difficult for them to navigate. That is, what do they do if they hear messages at home and from their ministers that is a different message than what they're hearing in the national media? It's very complicated for them. So those of us who teach uh, on college campuses now, particularly in the South, and particularly in what we would call the Bible Belt, uh, it takes a long time to get young people to unlearn some of those messages and to step outside of a context in which what you're saying is very different from what they've ever heard growing up in their lives. How do you do it? I mean, how do you I do, do it? it by, you, I do yeah. it by uh, talking about, which I think has been very helpful, talking about uh, the changes that have occurred over the last 30 or 40 years 
with respect to issues around gay and lesbians. Uh, talk about what happens in uh, what has happened historically in other cultures. Talk about Native Americans who um, permitted people in their cultures to choose, in many ways, how they wanted to express masculinity or femininity. In other words, try to enable them to understand that the way we have done it is not the way that people all over the world over time have thought about gay and lesbian people. And that is helpful even though it's a very, very slow process. Uh, show documentaries, show movies. There's a very wonderful movie called the, uh, called Pariah that is a coming-of-age story of a young black lesbian adolescent. Which I saw that movie. That was a fantastic movie. That was that was a little gem. I don't know yes, that it was a little gem. It was a little gem because not a lot of. I mean, obviously, some people saw it, but not a lot. No. And we and and we brought the uh, filmmaker to the Atlanta University Center and had her talk to students. I I think that uh, uh, the films like that and. People who make films like that, who actually come in the flesh and talk to young people, is very helpful. Yeah, I would agree with you because actually that kind of validates your the point you just made. I mean, the the media is very powerful, both in both ways. It, mm-hmm. it has a negative effect with the hypersexualism, which mm-hmm. is horrible, to doing this kind, you know, like a movie like Pariah. So you just kind of use the media. That's right. Say, yeah, and that's something that the kids understand. College mm-hmm. kids understand. Yeah, that's right. It's, that's familiar to them. Do you get so I use a lot of media. I use a lot of uh, substantive media uh, in my classes, um, mainly documentaries, but also feature films, which, it, which, which I think helps to um, attract a younger generation who are very accustomed to visual literacy. When you talk about feature films, which ones have you used? Uh, uh, well, I, I, I use, uh, <clears throat> I, use I, I think probably more uh, documentaries. I use Four Little Girls, for example. It, it would be surprising how little even young African Americans know about uh, civil rights movement or civil rights history. So I use also a lot of, uh, I use Eyes on the Prize, I, I, you know, uh, to talk about the uh, situation of black folk in the U.S., well, Even I saw I teach- the movie, and we only have a couple minutes left, but I saw the movie Butler last week. Yeah, Butler. And I sobbed through the whole thing. I mean, I literally could not stop crying. I mean, the, the, I mean if, if I, to me, that, I mean, I know people say it's Hollywood and all that, but the acting was superb, and the story was really right it was an there. excellent film. Yeah, excellent film. The excellent film, and, and I would absolutely use, uh, and, and I would say that for many of our young black students, that story will, I mean, the the plight of black people will be as unfamiliar to them as it would be to a lot of young white students. Yeah, which in one one way is good. Because yeah, that's, that's not, true. That's yeah, true. They haven't experienced that, but they need to take that history and bring it forward. You know, it's, it's, um, yeah, it's important to, to know it, maybe, and to uh, be able to, to understand it. Obviously, it's part of your history, but it is a good thing that they haven't experienced it. That's true. That's true. Yep. But we only, uh, it was great talking to you today. I really, really enjoyed the interview. And you and I are going to see each other here in New York in a couple weeks. Which is I, I enjoyed it, too. Thank you so much. Thank you. This is, and you certainly earned your title as a superstar in the women's movement, I have to say. Okay. <laughs> All right. I'll see you soon. Bye.
Thank you. It's Dr. Beverly Guy Scheftel, Ph.D., described as one of the leading African-American feminist scholars of our time. Um, hope you enjoyed the show today. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to me on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Have a great week, and we'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network its staff, and management.